Today's main Bible reading is Esther chapter 6. That's on page 413 in the Church Bibles. Esther chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men, who attended him, said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Thank you, Nikki. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage. Before we do, there's just a couple of things to mention. The first thing is just to let you know that we will be having a question time, brief question time at the end of the sermon, so do be aware of that so you know what questions, or you could be thinking of what questions you might like to ask. One other thing to mention is the sermon outline. In your service sheet, there's a sermon outline. 
But if it's of use to you, then obviously you can make use to it. If not, don't worry. And then finally, and most importantly, we're going to ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this passage, why might we get to know you better and how you work your redemptive plan through uh, creation? We thank you that although your name is not mentioned in this book, you are not silent and you cannot be kept from bringing about your purposes. Amen. Well, a moment ago we read Proverbs 16 verse 9, which says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. But what does it mean? The first half speaks of man's intentions, while the second half speaks of God's involvement. The first half speaks of what man plans to achieve, while the second half speaks of what God will achieve. Or we could consider it from a slightly different perspective. Man does precisely what he wishes to do, but God has determined these steps for his purposes. Now it feels like as we explore this proverb, we can reach a point where the two phrases are in danger of becoming contradictory. We could put it much more bluntly. Man decides what he does, but God decides what man does. That phrase doesn't really work. Man cannot decide what he does while at the same time God decides what man does. But Proverbs 16 verse 9 is a little more subtle than this. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. What if we tried a little experiment? The focus of today's passage is on Haman. So what if we considered this proverb in light of what Haman is up to? So we could say, the heart of Haman plans his ways, but the Lord establishes Haman's steps. I wonder if this could be fruitful. Well, Haman is unable to enjoy his coming feast prepared for him and the king by Esther because he's tormented by his enemy Mordecai. So as we saw last week, Haman has just had a gallows built that is 50 cubits high. Now, he, does, he doesn't just want Mordecai to die. He also wants his body to hang in full sight of everyone so that he's shamed. And Haman doesn't want to kill Mordecai himself. He wants the king to decree his death. It looks like it isn't only the king who cannot sleep. Now that Haman has planned his way and decided that what he wants, that is Mordecai dead, and how he's going to achieve it, he heads to the outer court of the king's palace before any other advisers arrive. This is the plan 
that the heart of Haman has settled upon. But what's interesting is how everything he has planned has now placed him in the perfect position given everything else has been happening that same night. Because while Haman has been building gallows to prepare for Mordecai, the king has been led awake, reading all about the same Mordecai. And here we come to what we might call the first coincidence. Remember, Esther wishes to make a request to the king. But she's been both shrewd and patient. She's been preparing the situation carefully and cautiously so that the king is in the best position to grant her request. So the first Vestas feast has been given. The following day there will be a second feast. But during the night, between Esther's two feasts, the king is unable to sleep. So he calls for the book of Chronicles to be read. And as the book of Chronicles is read to him, we have a series of other coincidences. First, they come across the account of Mordecai, who saved the king's life. Now, this refers back to that odd, unaccounted for episode at the end of chapter 2. When we looked at chapter 2 a few weeks ago, we read of how Mordecai was at the king's gate, how he came across eunuchs who were plotting against the king, and Mordecai told Esther so she could warn the king. And as we read it, it felt like it served no purpose. When in fact, it did have a purpose, it was laying the context for Esther 6. Another aspect that is extremely important for how things will unfold is that the king at the time overlooked any reward for Mordecai. And so in Esther 6, when he asks what reward was made, the response given is none. And so the king decides, well, that must be remedied immediately. And it's at this point that the king's plans... And Haman's plans converge. Which brings us to yet another coincidence. We have learned as we've read through the book of Esther that the king never makes a decision upon himself. He always consults his advisors. But the problem is, it's early morning. There isn't likely to be anyone around. Apart from the fact that Haman is waiting in the outer court to ask the king to kill and shame the very person the king is planning to honour. The king calls for Haman and presents his question, but he does so in a manner that allows Haman to conclude, well, the only person the king would wish to honour is me. This is Haman's biggest mistake as he describes this ludicrous affair of the highest official dressing the one the king wishes to honour in the king's clothes, guiding him through the city on a horse, shouting, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. 
By this time, the author's now done all the hard work. All that is left is for the king to reveal to Haman who it is he wishes to honour. And the author doesn't need to spend much space recounting Haman's honouring of Mordecai. He only gives it a verse... And he then leaves it to our imagination to consider how degrading this experience must have been for Haman. There are a couple of things to explore before we conclude. Notice, on, notice in verse 10, it says this. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. The king states that Mordecai is a Jew. So he knows Mordecai is a Jew. And yet it's only a few chapters ago, back in Esther 3, that the king signed an edict to kill the Jews. And now he's honouring one of them. Let's just have a quick look back at chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring with his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Notice that Haman never tells the kings, the king that it is the Jews he wants to destroy. He simply refers to them as a certain nation. This means the king never really realises that the edict is against the Jews. Also, it's worth just bearing in mind as well that he still doesn't know that his queen is a Jew. Remember, Mordecai has told Esther to keep that quiet. But what he does know now, or what he does know, is that Mordecai is a Jew. And Mordecai has just been given the highest of honours because he saved the king's life. All that's happened in this chapter prepares the king for Esther to make her request in Esther 7. Another thing to observe is how Haman's wife and wise men respond to him. Have a look at verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
they conclude that the Jewish people cannot be defeated. Now, all that we've explored so far raises numerous questions. How did events unfold so precisely to leave Haman in such a difficult position? You can go all the way back to the start. The king banishes his first queen. Esther is then made queen in her place. Mordecai saves the king, but his reward is overlooked. Haman finds himself at the outer court to request Mordecai's death on the same sleepless night that the king has read about Mordecai and decided to honour him. And all this happens the night before Esther's second feast, when she will make her request. Well, Haman has come up against the providence of God. While, as we keep saying, God isn't mentioned by name in the book of Esther, God's activity is meticulously recorded in the book of Esther. Which brings us all the way back to where we began. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Haman has taken dislike to Mordecai, and he's allowed his anger to reach the point that instead of just killing Mordecai, he wishes to destroy the whole Jewish nation. And this is the plan that Haman has set out on. And as far as the early chapters demonstrate, he's made quite some headway. But God has promised to fulfill his salvation purposes for the world through Abraham's descendants, the Jews. So if Haman succeeds, then God's promise is broken. And salvation is lost. But what happens is Haman continues determined to fulfill his plan. But every step he takes forward actually places him in a much more precarious position than he began. As he attempts to unfold his plan, it becomes clear that every further step is one more towards his own undoing. And this is because it is God that establishes Haman's steps. Haman is very clear what his heart desires and what he wishes to achieve. But God causes each of the steps of his heart to bring about his purpose, not Haman's. And when Haman's family say to him, if Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you'll not overcome, but will surely fall before him. They testify that the God of the Jews will not let his people be destroyed. So it's futile to stand against God as the recent events have proven. It is through Haman's plans to destroy God's people that God will actually bring about Haman's downfall and bring salvation to the Jews. Let's pray. Amen. 
Dear Heavenly Father, as we have spent some time exploring the nuances of your providence in the book of Esther, we pray, Lord, that we would appreciate that this still stands now, that you are involved in your creation. You do sustain the world. And you bring about and will bring about your redemptive purposes. So we pray, Lord, that we might be assured and confident that your salvation is unthwartable and that you will bring about um, the new heavens and the new earth as you promised. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that there would be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments in like of the things that we've been thinking about. That point has now arrived. So I'll give you a moment to have a think about anything you'd like to ask. Yes, Josh. Sure, yeah, let me just repeat that for the recording. So um, I guess from our point of view as Christians who've been uh, redeemed and therefore raised up and given a new life, we're to live according to that new life and in light of God's uh, redemptive work in us. Um, But I guess one of the things we've been thinking about today is that obviously God can work through anything um, so how do we think about the fact that it's not about us just sitting back and just doing whatever we like because God can fulfill his purposes through whatever, but actually there is an obligation for us, an expectation for us, and a duty for us to live in God's, um, according to God's word. So how do we sort of align those two things up? Yeah, good question. So... I guess one of the things to think about is how God's purpose is that he, well, going right the way back, 
to the fall. At the fall, you get the point where Adam and Eve take from the tree and eat. And as a result of that, the world is cursed. And that's the point where the default position of the whole of humanity is to rebel against God. So already we begin to see what the purpose of God is. Because if that's the case, then creation and particularly God's image bearers is going to come to ruin because they're all rebelling against him. So his plan is to bring salvation so that the penalty isn't uh, meted out against his image bearers, but also raise them up so that they can live according to his plan in, uh, in line with his word. So that's the direction the plan's going in. So, I guess we've kind of got two things running parallel to one another. Because then when salvation does come, and we, we see it come through Christ, Christ then brings people into that new life, at which point, obviously, the expectation is, is they'll live in line with God's word, and therefore be fulfilling his purpose. Whereas, the means by which God will do that is those who are hostile towards him will turn against Christ and crucify him. So here we get this, I mean, this is the ultimate example of God's providence working out. It's similar to Haman in that they plan to destroy the Messiah so the Messiah couldn't um, become the Messiah. But in destroying the Messiah, so he couldn't become the Messiah, he rises from the dead and is given the glory and honour of being the Messiah. So in doing that, they're in that sort of example of being hostile to God and yet unwittingly doing the very thing that God wanted them to do so that they brought about his plan even though it was against his own son and therefore they were culpable for it. But in doing so that, it brings about all those that follow then Christ will then want to obey and obey him to fulfill the purpose it's necessary. So, now the reason I kind of present it as that, hopefully you kind of see that God's working through both types of people, those who are in line with God's word and therefore fulfilling that plan, those who are hostile are bringing about that plan into plan, plan to fruition, as it were. So there isn't really a category of person who believes or who is a Christian who believes, but is just doing their own thing, and God is incidentally bringing about his plan through that purpose. Because if you are hostile towards God then you can't be in the people of God. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And I guess the other thing is, is um, the kind of the reason we can do, like we can follow in his steps and follow his word, is because... God is still establishing his steps, but he's established his steps to obey 
and he's given him the Holy Spirit so that he's convicted or she's convicted of his sin, what believes in Christ and wants to follow Christ, wants to live in the new life. I think but this, it begins to get our uh, get us thinking, I think. Another question? Yes, Nikki. Good question. So, interesting. Yeah, so just to repeat the question. So 5 verse 14, we have Zeresh talking to Haman and his friends. And they say, build a gallow and then hang Mordecai on the gallows. But then by the time we get to 6 verse 13, we have... If Mordecai, this is Zeresh again, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you'll not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So I think a few things are happening here. Um, so I think back in chapter 5, it's clearly mentioned in verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So Zeresh knows that he's a Jew. It's not that she suddenly realized, oh, if he's from a Jew, then you're scuppered. So it's not that in itself. Um, but I guess it at the end of chapter 5, Haman's plan's looking pretty solid. The Jews are going to be destroyed. The gallows have been made. He just needs the decree. He can manipulate the decree. Uh, he can manipulate the king. We've seen him do that before. So I think from Zeresh's point of view, she's probably thinking, yeah, this is going to happen. I think the thing that changes then when we get to chapter 6 is that Zeresh realizes that things are not actually looking in Haman's favor. As she tell, retells this thing. And you think about this, Mordecai has now been honoured in, you know, basically, Haman was honoured, but Mordecai is kind of greater than Haman now, or at least in a, in a, on a par. And Haman is the one who's had to honour him, so it kind of puts him. So I think Zeresh, on one sense, is just saying, oh, okay, your plan's not going as it seems. Now, I guess here's the question of what's really going on. And I think there's a few options. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that um, God worked mightily through the Jews and they would win every battle because God fought for them as long as they're obeying God. And so that did bring a fear um, through the different nations because they were like, God fights, the battle belongs to the Lord, God fights for these people, we cannot stand against them. So there could be an element of this. If she's heard a whiff of this, she might be thinking, actually, it does look like your plan's not going as to... Uh, it looks like you're going to fall against Haman. And if you're fighting... Uh, sorry, against Mordecai. If you're fighting against him, and he's a Jew, we know from history, you, 
things don't go well. It could be that the narrator is um, slightly taking... Well, you know, he's, he's narrating the story. He knows what's coming. He knows how it unfolds. So he slightly puts things in Zeresh's mouth to kind of um, sort of give a, hi- a hint of what's coming. So I think they're all the sorts of things that are happening. Yeah, I think really, verse 5, it all looked like it was going to go Haman's way. By the time, sorry, chapter 5, by the time we get to chapter 6, it's not looking so good for Haman. Um, if, there's, if there's one more, we could have time for one more, although I've taken quite a long time to answer the others. Yes, Katie. Good question. <laughs> um, who did? Oh no, I, Adrian. Did you read anything about this? I've not really looked at it. I imagine probably not. Um, I think you know. I think when you come to One Kings, Two Kings, Chronicles, Esther, it all gets a little bit. You know, I think the author is um, silent. As to who he is, so no, I'm not sure we could say anything. Have you, do you know anything, Adrian? The commentary's down here, so I could have a quick look later on. Um, but I, I think any sort of suggestions would probably just be uh, guesses. Yeah, most definitely. And we get when we get to the end. Um, chapter 9 and 10 we kind of find out why this story has been told Um, so it's quite I don't want to take too much away from chapter 9 and 10 but yeah we find out why it's told and so why it's recorded but yeah very much it's it's all about a Jewish celebration and therefore it's written by Jews yeah definitely Caroline yeah that's a that's a good possibility, yeah. Um, so I, th- I think, yeah, often they do draw those conclusions that it ends up being written. Although I don't know, I don't know whether... Would Mordecai write about himself in the way that he does? I think if Mordecai wrote it, he probably would have... I don't know, yeah. Not that I know Mordecai particularly well. <laughs> okay, let's stop there. Um, we're going to... Sing My Hope is Belt, and then we're going to have a a short reflection, uh, further thinking about the things that we've been thinking about this morning.